0: The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ That he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. As a reminder, what we've been doing very briefly is looking at what the gospel is and how it transforms our life. This is the main thesis of this letter that Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. Here is the beautiful gospel, and here is how it transformed every area in life. And I am amazed and stunned in a good way, and I hope you are too, at what we find in chapter 3. Chapter 3 is is so helpful for us because it keeps us from seeing Christianity as merely a a religion of facts or a religion of intellect, Uh, even a, a religion just merely of organized doctrines of things we should believe, nor is it a a religion of doing or acting or behaving and and following rules. Christianity is something that is not only information, it's an experience that transforms our lives in every way. And what I mean is that chapter 3 is going to test the genuineness of our faith in all that we learned in chapter 1 and 2. Let me show you uh, to you in this way. This is our our fifth week through working through this letter, piece by piece. And for four weeks, something really fun has happened, maybe uniquely actually, um, to me. For four weeks, every week, there have been several of you through different mediums of texting or talking to me after the service or emailing or phone calls saying, I just want you to know how much I am enjoying This preaching series. I want you to know how great the life groups have been and working through these passages. You you say things like really loving this and really stoked about Ephesians. You know who you are, the ones that use that word still. You're saying learning a lot. (laughs) Say God's speaking to me through the book of Ephesians. And so you say keep up the good work. I'm really loving what's happening. And so I've had to pause and wonder, like, why, you know, because this doesn't happen, right? So why, what is so <laughs> unique about this? And I figured it out why. I figured it out, and I wanted to share with you all, why I think this phenomenon has happened. And that's because we're only through chapter two. It's going to pivot today, okay? Uh, how can you not love Ephesians up to this point? How can you not love what we have been learning about God and his grace for us? Look at what we, here's a summary of all that we have learned up to this point. We have, and these are words right from scripture that we've studied. You are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. You were once living a life destined for God's punishment, but you are now saved by his grace. You were once an enemy, now you're a friend. You were once an orphan, but now you're part of God's family. Your sin once made you far from God, but Christ, through his blood, drew you near to him. And no one, looking at all that stuff in chapter 1 and 2, says, yeah, those are just things I don't like about God. No one says, I hate that God is that way. Why is he so gracious? Why is he so kind? Why is he so merciful? Of course you love this letter, because we're only through chapter 2. Of course you love this. This has been, for the last four weeks, it has been Christmas morning, and every single one of us are six years old. You follow me? It has been abundant good news after good news, and we are so excited about it. But when we get to chapter 4, and when we get to chapter 5, and when we get to chapter 6, Ephesians starts saying things a little differently. It starts saying, don't be filled with drunkenness but be filled with the Spirit as you relate to one another. Husbands, lay down your life for your wife. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Do not sin in your anger. Forgive your enemies. Children, obey your parents. Let your sexual ethic be determined by God's Word and not by our culture. I think the text messages are going to get fewer and fewer as the weeks go on. And chapter 3 acts as a pivot point, a pivot point from learning about all that God is and what he has done and the beauty of his good news and how this applies to our life. And it does become harder, but no less good, no less beautiful. Chapter 1 and 2 are awesome. And chapter 3 is beginning to show us the pivot point that says, what you believe must overflow into a life. What you believe about chapter 1 about chapter 2, must overflow into how you live. And Paul's going to get into those specifics, and it starts even today. And so again, chapter 3 is going to test how much you really love chapter 1 and chapter 2. And the context of this chapter is Paul's sharing of his personal pivot point in his life of how the gospel made him pivot from living a life apart from God and and, and, and destined for punishment, Paul shifts to talking about himself now. He's been talking two chapters about God. And so in this passage, he uses a lot of the, a similar word. It's the word I. He's talking now in the first person. He tells his story about his testimony of coming to faith in Jesus and then life after Jesus. And we can fill in the gaps of his story with other passages that tell us of his life before and after Christ that's not filled in here. We know that Paul, was, he harassed Christians. He oversaw the, the murder of the first martyr in Scripture, which was Stephen. Once born again in Christ, after being born again, Paul went from persecuting Christians to being persecuted as a Christian, even writing this very letter from a prison cell because of his witness of the gospel. Paul knew what it was like to suffer, and he knew what it was like to witness the suffering of his friends and loved ones around him, people he loved so much. And, and through his battle-tested suffering, Paul gained a great perspective, a perspective for, for, for what it meant to suffer in Christ. And he gained credibility for all that would listen to him and for all of us, credibility. Say, so why should we listen to Paul and what he has to say about suffering? Because Paul's resume of suffering is probably second only to Jesus. Really. If you look at the people, if you look at the martyrs, if you look at the suffering of the early church, Paul's suffering is second only to Christ. And so when he talks about suffering, he knows what he's talking about and we should listen. And what Paul is talking about is very important to us. He means to show us how each of us should handle our struggle our difficulty, our sorrows, our pain, our suffering in day-to-day life, that it must be tied to our spiritual calling. It must be tied to everything that we learned in chapter 1 and 2 that we, that we love so much. He, how, how does he do this? Well, first, let's briefly point out what he doesn't do. He doesn't take a stop, stop-whining approach. We're not going to see... Paul speaking to our suffering and our sorrow. He doesn't say, you know what, just grow up already. I mean, God's done a lot of great things for, for you. What's the matter with you? Everyone, suffer. Everyone suffers. It's all a part of growing up. It just happens. And that's the way the world speaks a lot of times. The world says, you know, if you're hurting, just, just get over it. Get, get over it. Grow up. Stop whining and crying about it. Nor does he take another approach. He doesn't just try to find the silver lining in our difficulty. He doesn't say, you know, I know things are really difficult now, but I'm sure that things are going to work out for the better for you. I'll never forget it. A very honest conversation that I had and a very honest and loving rebuke that I received one day when someone was sharing their struggle with me and they were, it, was, it was kind of open and there was another, a couple other people in the room and this person was just sharing their heartfelt struggle and saying, I wonder when it's going to get better. They were, they were talking about... Uh, lack of trusting in God and does God really care and is something going to happen and, and my response and a desire to be to give pastoral care uh, and encouragement to this person I said you know what you're a good person you know this is going bad already right? so I say you know what I said you know what God loves you you're one of his I bet if you just keep doing what you're doing and keep trying hard things are going to work out and God's going to take care of you because he loves you and this person in the room just says, it could not. It might not. In fact, things could actually get worse. And she was right. And she was right. And so this desire that we have, like we go from one, one uh, kind of worldly wisdom to another. We say, oh, just stop whining, getting it. It's just all part of living. Hard, hard life is all part of living. Or we also don't say like, you know what, let's try to find the good in this. And, and if you keep going in the same direction, uh, you know, karma says that if you just keep being a good person, then something good's gonna happen, you just need to keep doing it. But the gospel gives us a new way of looking at our suffering. And Paul means to show us that. Instead of being consumed by our feelings when we suffer, or going through a t- hard time, and instead of being indifferent to our struggles by just brushing them off, pretending that they don't matter, we want to think deeply about what the Bible says about our struggles. We must look at our suffering the way that Paul looks at our suffering, by seeing our suffering through the lens of truths of God. And that's what Paul does. And he is one of the best qualified to teach us how to do that, as he is writing this very thing from a prison cell, in the midst of his own personal struggles. And so Paul is going to show us three truths about God. Here we go. The first truth that we see about God is this. He says, Jesus put me here. I, prisoner, I, Paul, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ for you. And notice this, Paul does not say, I, Paul, a prisoner of Rome for you. I, Paul, a prisoner of pagan culture. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ. I am Jesus' prisoner. I am here because Christ has put me here. It's no one's fault. And then he goes on into this long digression talking about God's personal calling on his life. Do you see this? He's not losing place in his story. Paul hasn't just, his mind hasn't drifted. But do you see here, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And he says, Assuming that you heard all these things. And now he just starts talking about himself. Why does he do this? He's not losing place. He's, his digression is intentional. He says, It was by God's calling that I came to hear about the gift of God that came into my life in the first place. It is by God's calling that I was able to understand and comprehend the the hidden mysteries that the mysteries of Christ which were not known to the sons of men. It was by God's calling that I was made a minister of the gospel and a pastor to you. It was, a, it was by God's calling, and he's saying all these things in this passage, it was by God's calling that this message went forward in power, and it's by God's calling that when I preached this, you heard it and understood it, and your lives were changed by it. And in the in he says, compared to all the other apostles, like John and Peter and James, I'm really not that great. So he even says, this is by God's calling that everything that is happening right now is happening because I am actually not that skilled as a pastor. Isn't this amazing? Don't you picture Paul as just this, like, this, you know, kind of above human kind of pastor that can't do anything wrong? People rejected Paul often because he could not speak well, because his thoughts were cluttered. There was a guy during a sermon who fell off of a balcony because he fell asleep and died. (laughs) I have... In seven years, no one has died in my (laughs) preaching, okay? I am a better preacher than Paul. This is great, okay. This is in the Bible, people. He says, all the apostles are actually better than me, so it's by God's calling that all of this stuff is happening. And then he says, and if only I had been sent to another church, I could have avoided the suffering that I'm in. No, he doesn't say that. I'm trying to keep you awake. He doesn't say that at all. He says, and guess what? It's by his calling that I am where I am right now, in this prison cell, writing this letter to you. How could it be that everything in my life has happened because of God's sovereign and loving hand, and all of a sudden that changes, and I'm in this prison cell, and all of a sudden God has abandoned me? That this doesn't have anything to do with what he has done in my life? It doesn't have to do with my calling? It doesn't have to do with his loving, kind hand in my life? He says, this was according to the eternal purposes of Christ, why do we have such a hard time with something like this? Because don't we? We have a hard time with something like this. It's because ultimately we have a difficulty getting our heads around the real content of, of Ephesians 1 and 2. The claims that God is sovereign. that The claims that God does what he wants to do. That everything happens somehow according to his wise purpose. And we participate in no way in earning our salvation. We have a hard time suffering because we ultimately have a hard time with what Ephesians 1 and 2 says. We like what it says. We love that we are saved by grace. We love that it is his mercy that rescues us. We love hearing that we're hopeless and but God, who is rich in mercy, gave us everything in Jesus. But we have a hard time when it comes to suffering, remembering those same things. That God does what he wants to do. If you struggle, if you struggle with words and concepts like predestination, election, eternal calling, then you will also struggle with trying to figure out why hard things have come into your life when they do. They go hand in hand. And why would Paul spend almost a third of his entire letter to the Ephesians church? Why would he spend a third of his letter talking about the glorious salvation that has come by grace and not by any merit of our own? Two chapters Paul spends telling us in so many terms that Jesus put you here in the arms of God the Father. That Jesus took you out of death, raised you with Christ, and seated you in the heavenly places. Jesus took you out of your uh, citizen-less existence and made you a people of God. Jesus took you out of your sin and gave you new life. So Jesus takes you out of where you are and puts you in a new place. That's what all chapter 1 and 2 is about. And so when Paul lands in prison, he's able not to say, who put me here? This doesn't make sense. He's able to joyfully embrace God's calling for him. And this is difficult it's difficult for us, and he has, but he has found peace in it. Here's how chapter three becomes a pivot point of what we believe about God and how we live. We cannot believe that God is an overseer of our salvation and not an overseer also of everything else that happens to us. Paul's connecting the dots. He is pivoting it. He's saying, I'm about to tell you that how you should live is based on God's grace and mercy to you. And if you can't believe that, then the reasons why you live a good life are going to be self-centered, they're going to be wrong. You may do a good job, you may be a good person or a better person in your behavior, but you're doing it for the wrong reasons and you need to repent of those things too. And this leads naturally into a struggle for us, a struggle for you, a struggle for me. It's difficult for us to reconcile what we hear about God and his immeasurable mercy and his limitless kindness and then experience great difficulty. See, isn't that difficult for us? We, you've heard me preach for four weeks that God loves you, that his grace is lavished upon you, that his mercy is immeasurable, his kindness and love are great for you. And then to tell you, but you might suffer in this life. And you to say, how does that work? How can one be true and the other also be true? Paul is going to connect them here for us. He highlights these truths. And it leads us right into our next, his next point why we have this struggle and what to do about it, that God is both sovereign and good, that he's both in control and loving. And often, too too often when we suffer, we struggle with this. We question whether God's in control or is he really good at all. Some of us embrace one side. Some of us embrace that he is sovereign and in control, and therefore God is unkind. I believe that God is in control, but he he doesn't care about me. Or he is in control, but this is a result of of me. I am here apart from God's sovereign hand, and he's punishing me for this. He's just a mean God. So the result is a, a cold and distant God who can't be our comforter. Some of you see God as your Lord and your Savior, He's king of your life, but He might not be your friend, He might not be your comforter, He might not be your peace. He might not be the one to whom you run to and cry out because you just don't trust him in that way. You believe he's holding you in contempt and he's God. He's in control, of course, but he is not warm. He's dangerous and he is offensive. So you give him allegiance and you you trust in him and follow him because you have to and if you don't he'll just keep punishing you and so you try to keep doing the right thing as a scared child to a very mean father others see god in the other way he is good but not sovereign he's not in control the result is a false view of a god who doesn't want suffering to occur but he's powerless to stop it and so he's we serve a god who's rooting for us he's our cheerleader he likes us a lot and he wants to see good in our life, but his hands are tied to the circumstances of the world, a fallen and broken world. When we cry out to God and we say, God, I am hurting and my life is difficult and these, the things that are happening are not what I expected and God says, I know, I am hurting too. If only there was something that I could do for you, but I'm, I'm hoping for you, I'm hoping for better. Keep trying hard. I wish there's something I could do, but free will, and so some of us view God like that. His hands are tied. He can't do anything. I'm going to tell you the most important thing you're going to hear today. I mean, seriously, the most important thing you hear today. Even if, like, your young child speaks their first words today, this is still better, okay? (laughs) Okay? Even if you hear fly eagles fly, <laughs> I don't know. The Bible tells us that God is both sovereign and good. All the time at the same time. Paul repeatedly mentions that God is sovereign in this letter, right? There's no denying it. He used colorful and potent words like God chose, God elected, God Predestined. And he talks about these things like God's eternal purposes and God's plan and God's will. And God does what he wants to do. There's no denying that God is sovereign, that the God of the Bible is one who is in control. He removes all permission to see even the slightest molecule in all of creation outside of the control and authority of God. And if it were, then he would not be God. But Paul doesn't stop talking just about those things. He also balances his teaching with the beautiful language of God's goodness. Using phrases like, he is rich in mercy and his immeasurable kindness and his abundant grace and his great love and his manifold wisdom. As colorful as Paul is To to use words about God being in control, he uses an equal, colorful balance to tell us how good God is. And Paul knew who he was. He knew what he was called to do. And much more importantly, he knew who God was. And that liberated him. That freed him from the curse of discouragement in the midst of suffering. That focused his mind and enabled him to prioritize his words as he wrote and his activities and his emotions as he led this church and encouraged them. In a time of personal depravity, he knew that God had a purpose where others would have succumbed to discouragement of circumstances. Paul's mind was solid. His heart was resolved. He was steady. And it was all because he was certain of God's calling. He was certain of God's goodness this means that everything in our life including our suffering either comes from or passes through the hands of Christ to us and therefore everything that comes to us is a gift to us and everything that is kept from us is also a gift from us that God does not give to us if God is sovereign and good then your struggle has come to you for his glory. If God is sovereign and good, then struggle has come to you to allow you to spread the gospel. If God is both sovereign and good, then the suffering that has come to you is for your spiritual growth. Don't waste it, is what Paul would say. Don't waste this suffering. And so whatever happens in your life, God is ever faithful to work with and through all that happens to accomplish His will to keep us in His love to the praise of His glory. And so it is true to quote a very famous Bible verse that we would quote in the midst of suffering, and that is this, that God works all things for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purposes. But this verse is often misunderstood and misquoted. The Bible does not promise that we will see the good. The Bible does not promise that that good will come to us in the way that we anticipate that good. But it is certain that even whatever happens in our life will be used for God's glory, our spiritual growth, and the advancement of the gospel, even if we don't see it. And Paul says, I know that this is going to happen. I know that somehow me being in prison is going to cause the gospel to spread and flourish in your church. And I'm so excited about that. And I'm so excited that God is going to be glorified. And I'm so excited that I am going to spiritually grow. And I already feel it happening. Until that day. Until that day when we see that plan like fully realized, it's difficult for us. It's often difficult for us to believe in God's goodness and sovereignty when we suffer. Some of you are going through that now. We're prone to ask God why. We're prone to ask him which, which, what, what thing happened. Who is responsible for this thing? Maybe people ask this of Christ when we, they saw someone who was, who was born a cripple. And they say, Jesus, why has this happened to this person? Is it because of his sins or the sins of his parents? Who put him here? And Jesus said, no. <laughs> this is for God to be glorified. And he says, watch this, get up get up, and walk. And he gets up and walk. Jesus is changing the way that we normally look at our suffering, which is, who got me here? Was this my sin? Was it the sins of, uh, of others? Was it external or internal? And all those things may contribute to this, but God wants us to see something much, much bigger. It's dangerous to ask why, because it puts God on trial, and it puts us in the judge's chair, saying, God you have some answering to do. You have some answering to do for how I got in this place. I've got questions, and I want to hear some answers. And so it puts us in the judge's position. It puts God in, uh, as we are accusing him, and he needs to defend himself. And he's made it very clear that he doesn't need to (coughs) defend himself to anyone. He does what he does, and he is good. Everything he does is according to, to use Paul's word, words his manifold wisdom and so that means to tell us that God and what he does his wisdom is much better than ours it's beyond our understanding he does things that we don't understand and one day when we see it all together and we know fully his plan as we are fully known we'll say oh that was perfect oh everything that you did everything that came my way every suffering every tear oh that that made sense Thank you so much for allowing that to happen. That was all good. That's what wisdom is. God knowing what to do and how to do it to bring about the good that he purposes. Admittedly, it's much easier emotionally to find an answer, to find the reason for our suffering. It's much easier to know that we're here because of somebody's sin or because of our own. And Paul moves us finally to being, from being led by our emotions to walking in faith. His final plea in regards to our suffering is this. Put your trust... In what you do know, not in what you don't know. This actually sounds like a real modernized how-to to avoiding discouragement. But it is Paul's approach. And here is what he is saying in verse 11 through 13. You want to read that again in verse 11 through 13? Paul says, This was according to the eternal purpose that he's realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. And then he says, So, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. He says, here's what I want you to know in the midst of your suffering. You have a God who's sovereign and he'll accomplish his purposes. You have a good God who loves you and will see you through on his his promises to bless you. Everything that God has said will come true. And I want you to walk by faith. So don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged. Don't lose heart. What does that mean? Because this is Paul's big final plea to us. This is his exhortation to us. Don't lose heart. So I want you to understand what it means to not lose heart. It doesn't mean simply cheer up. It doesn't mean look on the bright side. It doesn't mean let go and let God. As I was studying this phrase more comprehensively in Scripture, one very smart biblical scholar puts it this way explaining what this phrase means. And he says this. In scripture, the phrase, do not lose heart, firmly forbids all apocalyptic calculations. What does he mean? I had to, I, this took me like a half hour to figure out what he meant. <laughs> it simply means, stop asking why. Stop trying to figure out what this has to do with the grand plan of your life. Stop trying to figure out if the world is ending and the ultimate cause and ultimate end and ultimate fruit of what's going on in your life. Paul says, Stop doing that. That's building anxiety. You are trying to answer questions that cannot be answered. Stop trying to figure out how this struggle fits into God's eternal plan for your life. We should never try to ultimately make up our mind regarding what purpose that suffering has in your life, but rather we're told to trust that Jesus loves us And he has gone through great lengths, even gone to the great length of giving his own life for us to show us his great love. He has died on the cross in part so that you and I don't have to figure out why. But we can just know that he loves us and he is good and he's in control. He says in Matthew, who by worrying can add a single minute to your day? You are worrying about things that I promise you will never know the answer to until Christ returns and you see it fully. So trust that God is a good father who gives his children what they need. Trust that God is a good father who holds and sustains the universe in his hands. Trust in him. But we can still act. Paul still tells us to engage, right? This isn't just, oh, so we just don't do anything. Paul says, Don't lose heart. He's he's kind of spurring us on to, to active participation in faith and trusting in Him. He tells us to engage. We're to pray. We're to pray fervently, praying not for the meaning of this, but praying that our faith will not fail in the midst of suffering. This is what we will talk about next week, and he even alludes to in this passage. Paul says, in the midst of all this, instead of trying to figure out why it's happened or pray that God would take you out of the suffering, pray, that you, your faith, would remain sure in the midst of it. Faith in what? Faith that God is in control, and faith that God is good, and He loves you, and He's going to take care of you. You may not see how, you may not see when, but it will happen. Pray for that. Here's another plain-as-day reason to not ask why. Paul says in verse 8... He gives us the reason why he uses the phrase because his plans are unsearchable. <laughs> the unsearchable riches of his grace. Paul was sent to tell us how amazing the blessings are of Christ but that we, off, that we ultimately cannot see them. Trust in God is the result of truly knowing who he is and what he's done for us. And how suspicious us Christians can be when things happen that aren't according to our plan or what we expected or our aspirations. Our first reaction is, this doesn't seem like a God who's in control or it doesn't seem like a God who really loves me. Why has this happened? Is God really for me or is God really good? Most of God's blessings that come to us are hidden. Most of us, we cannot see. They're out of our sight. God's people have a history of questioning God's love for us, especially when we suffer Have you noticed that? We never question God's love for us when things go great. When things happen for us that bless us, we say, that sounds like something God would do. And when something goes bad, we say, that sounds like something God wouldn't do. Most of God's blessings are hidden. God's love for you is not simply found in what you can see. It's often in what you can't see. And yet we're called to just trust in by god's track record by his credibility by him doing everything that he has said he would do looking through the whole history of redemption of god making a promise to his people our first parents in the garden saying this sin that that has come into the world that has destroyed you and given you guilt and cursed you i'm going to fix it and i'm going to fix it through great suffering that's going to come to me and by by reiterating this promise to his people through generations God bringing up Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob and a family of God's people and bringing a family to himself. And now in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is saying, and now this big family of God has been brought in, not just to his ethnic Jews, but to the whole world, to the Gentiles. God is saying, my whole purpose was to bring to myself a big family of people who knew who I was and trusted me for who I am and live their light in light of that. This has been his plan for all along. And then he's telling us, there's a lot you can't see. There's a lot you don't know. You know, it's like our, it's like our ch- children asking for crackers. Hey, can I have some of these crackers? I'm saying, no, you can't. Have, why? Well, you just, you can't have it. Because we know, we know that in that box, as when we opened it up, it's just like, it's all molded. <laughs> it's all bad. It's all bad. And so this gift we don't give to them that they want, we say, well, you can't have it. These are no good for you. They're going to harm you. Maybe we don't explain it that way, but our kids are just left like, well, you're not, you don't care for me, or you can't get them for me. And God's saying, my blessings are unsearchable. You can't know everything. God's love for you can't always be seen. You can't see exactly how he chose you before you were born, as Ephesians 1 tells us. You cannot see exactly how God has put in your place this complex plan and events to bring the gospel to you through a preacher, a friend, uh, a scripture passage, a podcast that you stumbled upon as you were flipping through scripture or online. You cannot see how exactly Jesus takes your sin on the cross and how that, that work on the cross is applied to your life to raise you from the dead, your spiritual deadness. You can't see that. You can't see exactly how he's forgiven you or exactly how the Holy Spirit takes a dead heart and makes it alive you can't see all that. You can't see how he preserves you in heaven and, and guarantees your, your glorification. You can't see how his promises of, of there will be a body that will raise from the grave. Even as your body fails, your spirit will ascend into, uh, to be with Christ when you die. You can't see it. You can't see how today you're in the sovereign hands of God. That no matter what happens to you is in the, in the hands of a God who loves you and who is good. And you can't see often how your struggle fits fits into God's desire to give you his best. You can't see it. But somehow he tells us that we ought to possibly believe it. It's not only possible to believe it, we're told to believe it. We're told to hold on to it. By faith, we're told to trust in his love. We're told to not lose heart. We're told to be courageous. The more consistent a Christian life you live... Here's what typically happens. The more consistent of a Christian life you live, the more likely you are to actually suffer for God. What the history of the Bible teaches us, that actually the better Christian you are, the worse your life will be. God reserves his greatest suffering for his greatest saints. But you have not lost if you have Christ. Because to live is gain, to, die is, to live is Christ, to die is gain. So I ask, if you're going through a hard time, if you're struggling, if you have simply lost your way, if you're wondering, if you're trapped in thoughts of despair and affection, I would say, do not lose heart. Do not try to figure out God's unsearchable plan in this struggle. But instead, turn your effort to seeing God as he has been revealed to you through his precious word. As one who is, in fact, in control. And one who loves you so much he would give his own life. God would give his own son, his only son, because he loves you and wants you to know the glorious, unsearchable measure of his love. The person who stops seeking to know why but instead desires to know more of God is a person who seeks to grow in deeper relationship with God. And that is exactly what will happen. Once we stop uh, the anxious pursuit of trying to figure out why and start pursuing the God who has brought us to this place, we will grow in deeper relationship with Him. And then we will grow in what it truly means to have eternal life, to know God and the love of Christ whom He has sent to us. That is why Paul tells us in chapter 2 that we read last week, Christ is your peace. That's why he says your peace is not that the circumstance goes away. Your peace doesn't come when you, your life changes. Your peace comes when you know Jesus. Christ is your peace. Your hope is a person, is what he is saying. Your hope is not a spouse or a well-behaved child. Or a prodigal who's come home, or a diagnosis that comes back clear. Your hope is a person. It's Jesus. He's working on you, He's working in you, He's working through your suffering to show you the riches of His grace, His immeasurable kindness, and His great love. And He will not give up on you. Don't waste your suffering. Let's pray.